Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, I'm Helen. And I'm Stephen. And this is the New Statesman podcast. So, it's... Um... It's a deep sigh to start the podcast. So, it's summer. I'm feeling pretty summery, actually. Um, I'm pleased that the news, ha- in political news at least, has dialed back to what I would kind of consider an acceptable level. Like, there is a, now a steady stream of news happening in kind of small increments, rather than all the news all the time. Yeah, I mean, it, partly we feel like we've now got our new summer tradition of a... Labour leadership election, which Jeremy Corbyn will win by a landslide. Um, well, let's talk about Jeremy Corbyn, because someone said to me today, well, actually, I, I saw it pass through my Twitter timeline, and I think it's a really good point, that people aren't doing enough to understand why people vote for Jeremy Corbyn. You know, they said, actually, a number of people, you know, um, really good academics, Rob Ford, Matthew Goodwin, looked into the revolt on the right, the idea of the left behind, this sort of um, anti-globalisation forces that drove the support of, uh, of UKIP. But actually... Uh, you know, there are some incredibly dismissive things that are said about Jeremy Corbyn supporters. I know that I can sometimes lose my temper with people who just don't accept kind of facts, but I hope that that's not us. Um, and I thought, you know, uh, actually, uh, Janan Ganesh wrote a column in the FT saying, you know, well, uh, you know, it, th- we can't be nice to people and say, well, it was fine to vote for Jeremy Corbyn last summer. It was stupid then, it's stupid now. I mean, essentially, that was the gist of what he said, which I, I, even if you think that, I don't kind of get why, you know, I mean, as a commentator, obviously, you can say that. That's the joy of being a columnist is you can upset as many people as possible, right? You, you say things that are deliberately inflammatory that provoke a response. But that is certainly not something that Owen Smith should be saying to the party. Yeah, I mean, so... um I have been rereading The Unfinished Revolution oh. uh, by Philip Gould lately. Um, weirdly, actually, so is uh, John McDonald's press aide, uh, James Mills. Well, if you uh, want, because I reread it on Honeymoon last year, we could form a, like a reading group. Because yeah. I, I don't know about you, but um, I mean, it felt very different. I read that then in June last year, right, where the lessons that I took for it, I kind of thought, oh, OK, that's where Labour is in its, its cycle. It's been through this unpleasant experience, and now it's ready to rebuild towards a kind of a majoritarian approach. It must be quite different to read it now it is quite different to read it now but i think the thing which i found really interesting is the first of his sort of 11 i think it is rules is start with an honest assessment of why you are in opposition not in government and you know without wishing to prejudge over much the labor leadership race although you know it is summer people go on holiday people are not 
plugging in. Ultimately, it's not going to get anything like the broadcast attention of, of the last one, even if there are as many hustings as Owen Smith would like there to be. So it feels highly unlikely to me that he will claw back the fairly large gap between him and Corbyn. Ultimately, can you sustain the idea that Corbyn's critics have started with an honest assessment of why they are in internal opposition? No, no, you can't. And it's, uh, it's, and I think it does come back to that point about well, why aren't people more interested in, in, in studying it? The thing I'm, I'm very aware of is that, and you know, and as, as ever, I am very grateful to our listeners who, who email in with the state on the, the state on the ground in their, in their patches. But it is one of those things where I find it particularly irritating. Um, a lot of academics who I respect a lot, who I would usually hope. I'd be able to with with Plaid Cymru, with with uh, with UKIP, with with the SNP, with with you know the success of the Conservatives. I'd be able to go. Okay, so I've I've done a lot of vox pops. My impression is this: is this backed up with the data? And they'd either go yes or no. And to be honest, the amount of information about why it is that I think it's because there are so many different explanations, and actually because they are, and I don't mean this in a pejorative way, they are emotional really i i think they are more on the level of of nationalism than they are of uh, of of something that you can kind of scientifically quantify i mean the thing that i keep hearing that i think is really interesting is the feeling that this is that this is the last chance right that um that 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 corbin is corbin by kind of whatever mischance or accident or happy coincidence whatever you want to call it got to be labor leader and they, you know, the, the the hard left, whatever you want to call it, will never get that chance again. And therefore, it is absolutely, you know, they need to, they need to make the most of it. And I and I hear that from people who are MPs who are sympathetic to Corbyn as well. They think they'll uh, that, you know, that that even electing Owen Smith, who is by all you know ma- measures on the soft left of the party, he's not a kind of fiscal hawk. He's not a defence hawk, and any of those things. They feel that that would be a capitulation to to almost back to New Labour. They feel that that's what that that's where they're going to be driven next they're not going to be allowed to you know the next leader will not rest on the soft left they will keep moving to the right yeah but i think things like that feels to me why a lot of elite supporters of jeremy corbyn are are where they are the the thing i find interesting and i feel no one has really explained is there are people who voted for david Miliband who voted for jeremy corbyn there are people who quite like Chakramuna who, who who would like him to run for leader at some point who are going to vote for Jeremy Corbyn in this leadership election. I have theories on why that is, but I... My theory is it, it, that's a kind of, well, if, if you haven't got a better option, why can't we try something a bit different? Yeah. That's that's my, my theory is, you know, come back to us when you've got a candidate that you think is really 100% solid gold and then we'll talk. But until then, why should I have to compromise for, for someone that you think is, yeah, sort of all right, yeah, but not inspirational? Yeah, it's not, I mean, not to kind of get too ahead into other sections but I think feel like the question I get the most now is how could Owen Smith win yeah or what campaign would Go he have back run in for? time but yeah that's the problem it's a bit like that old joke about you know how do I get to the Catholic Church oh well I wouldn't have started from here is that the joke Ba-dum-bum. yeah that's a terrible joke yeah. Um, yeah so it's like I think I'm, it might be an anti-Irish joke so someone asks for directions in Ireland yeah they go into a pub and uh, they're like okay. I'm looking to go to Tipperary. Tipperary. Go on. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, an Irish guy finishes his pint and turns and goes, well, I wouldn't have started from here. 
And I think the original joke is maybe that Irish people are too stupid to realise you need to give directions from where someone is. I don't know, but I... Well, that'd be something that perhaps you'd like to um, mob Stephen on Twitter to tell him what an offensive comment you found that. Yeah, but I'm also just intrigued as to what the the punchline of the actual joke is meant to be. Okay. Um, But in terms of Owen Smith, I really wouldn't have started from here. Um, His pitch... One, his pitch of, oh, there are people on the left and the right of the party who want to tear the party in two, doesn't really work if there isn't a third candidate in the race. It kind of worked. I mean, it wasn't really true. Angela Eagle does not want to split the Labour Party. But um, it works if you've got Angela Eagle in the race and you've got Jeremy Corbyn in the race. And certainly uh, some of Corbyn's uh, allies were very worried about his potency as the, the kind of candidate in the middle who could go look. We won't abandon what this guy is saying, but if he, if he wins, she'll destroy the party. Look, yeah, whereas now then... he's running on a let's unify the party, to which the inevitable response is, well... We don't want to. Yeah, but it's also, well, in that case, stand down and stop running against... Yeah, the... and also let's make Labour electable without then uh, kind of un- outlining the things that you would do, because as soon as you start getting into that, where you have to start saying, well, actually, we promise to cut migration, we do X, we do... Yeah, I mean, I, I also think... I think so. One of the analyses which I keep seeing a lot online from, um, there's no nice way to say this, I'm just going to say it in an incredibly catty way, um, some of the slightly pseudo-intellectual supporters of Corbyn, who you know, like, like to use a lot of long words in some not very good medium posts, uh, about uh, how Owen Smith will be a transitional figure, oh, he doesn't really believe in it. Which, I mean, is, is not true, actually. O- Owen Smith absolutely does believe in this kind of, like, soft left, middle of the Labour Party but agenda. Then... The difficulty is, is you can argue about whether Corbynism will, will fail when it's tested at the ballot box. It hasn't been. You can argue about whether or not Blairism still works when it's tested at the ballot box. Obviously, it has a three for re- three record, but quite a, great, a quite a lot of things have changed in politics since 2005. However, the one thing you can say with confidence has been found wanting at the polls is this sort of Ed Miliband smudgy smudgy kind of I'm a bit mean but I'm not that mean but but I will be a bit mean and the the thing is is actually although a lot of MPs didn't vote for Ed and they were worried about Ed's personal ratings and they had objections to Ed personally actually politically the Miliband agenda is is to be honest fairly close to the centre ground of the parliamentary party probably you it's could also get... pretty close to what Theresa May now wants right which is some you know I mean she would definitely put out the immigration mugs but also the stuff about uh, workers representatives on boards about energy bills you know she cribbed all her sort of social responsibility stuff for early speeches from Milibandism. well she also cribbed it from herself in the early early noughties to be fair it's true um i I mean i think wonkishly i think if one nation conservatism was was easy they would have done it already uh ultimately they very rapidly hit up against the i the things that they are ideologically opposed to doing so a hundred percent inheritance tax for example you know obviously an incredibly meritocratic uh way of uh, of getting tax revenue in if you want fairness you need to prevent the emergence of new aristocracies and you need to reverse the entrenchment of current aristocracies. Yeah, so- but they'll only do that kind of stuff, social mobility, where it's no, when it's a, a well-spread-out enough deficit to people who already have privilege, right? When no one individually, no one can individually point to say, I didn't get a job because X person got it, or I didn't get my kid into a school where X person got it. Well, I mean, this is the... I mean, one, so there are, there are lots of reasons why I'm not 
wow, I've clearly just won a lot of angry emails. There are lots of reasons why I don't really like social mobility as a as a kind of aim for the left. The the first is is I instinctively don't think that the aim should be to lifeboat a few people. Well, this is the grammar school argument, isn't it? Is that we always put more attention on the one bright kid who got airlifted out into a school and is now a managing director than we do even on oh yeah we do on on the twelve kids who got consigned to a school that was then deemed second class and treated that way, or indeed the the tens of thousands of children who got misclassified at at eleven and and actually could have have gone on very differently. But also the other problem is is people don't really believe in social mobility. Yeah, kind of like, like ultimately for social mobility rather than, you know, actual fairness to work, you, you, you have to at some point go, you know, some, some bankers, yeah, some banker's son, I'm afraid you won't get to become a banker because you're not very bright. Well, the Tory party um, is kind of living proof of that, right? Because as soon as Cameron started promoting lots of women to the cabinet, you had a grumpy caucus of white men in the party who said, well, there's my chances of promotion being gone oh immediately. Oh, God, speaking of, of, of grumpy white men, to continue my hating on the spectator, did you see Fraser Nelson's ridiculous post about how, oh, you know, we, we shouldn't bully the posh? No, because I have too much regard for my probably already quite high blood pressure. Okay, well, you know. I feel like... It's a problem with listening to that Prince's Street podcast, really, isn't it? <laughs> um, I feel like if you live in an actual castle, then your de- your your psychological defences against people being mean to you should be quite high. But also it's kind of like, oh, you know, it, it's it's not on merit. It's like, no, 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 it, 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 it is on merit. If, if, yeah, like, it is objectively more impressive than Theresa May has become Prime Minister... Than than David Cameron has become prime minister. It's more impressive than Theresa May became leader of her party than Jeremy Corbyn. Yeah, you know, like you know, sorry, like you know, Theresa May. You know, you know, like sorry, like if you're if you're the if you're the son of a vicar, you're, you're not growing up in wealth, right? Whereas like Jeremy Corbyn's family so loaded that all three of his kids had different colour coded clothes because they didn't need to have hand me downs. Well, they That's also lived in a, they in a house converted from a from a guest house. I mean, yeah. it was a you know, and also, I mean. Okay, let's talk about that quote that was that was coming going around that had some people very annoyed and some people counter annoyed. From a Red Pepper interview, he said, "You know, because I've never had any. I'm going to paraphrase this because I've never had any experience of higher education at all, which is not exactly true because he started at a polytechnic but didn't finish, um, as far as I know. Um, you know, I'm not in awe of people who do. You know, so actually, some of the wisest people that I've met have been street sweepers." And and there were yeah there's a lot of back and forth about you know because people go well what what are you saying if you criticise that quote are you saying it's shameful to be a street sweeper and to me it was like well no obviously it's not but that is objectively a hard demanding poorly paid job which most people would aspire to get you know get out of right if they have it people end up doing those jobs because they don't they need you know it's the only job they can get because it's the only one that works around the hours of their childcare you know they they haven't got any qualifications the fact is that it that and then the, what, what annoys me about the quote is that jeremy corbyn was never going to be a street sweeper right yeah i think that that's a yeah that. he can be who he is without having gone to university but there are working class people for whom university was their only escape from being a street cleaner and i think that there needs to be an acknowledgement of that in, in when you in when you sort of romanticize in that way yeah because that's the thing it's like so obviously jeremy is getting on a bit yeah he's not in an age where he would wish to be uh sweeping streets you know like frank frankly you know like when when i worked as a cleaner i was you know 
considerably you know I was younger than I am now and you know I you know yeah could, I've like, had jobs where I've been on my feet all day and that is a tough thing yeah, to like, do like if you particularly if you when you get to beyond your 50s and 60s and you're not yeah. you know and you're, you don't want to be on your feet all day because I, I think the thing is I think the quote in isolation didn't irritate me it's what I see as the slight disingenuousness in the exactly as you say but him dropping out of university was a slight yeah that he had a parachute yeah it's it's slightly different um but yeah, so, so obviously Fraser is wrong, and also the, the I thought that quote was slightly uh, disingenuous. Although I also did find the tone of some of the objections to it were also a little bit like, I'm not sure I like that either. But um, why not? Because I had a really interesting conversation with Biz Pears, who's now at BuzzFeed, and Simeon Brown of, of Channel Four News about it, and they were from they were taking the other kind of about what even you know, why are people so angry with it? And I'd first seen it come up from. Robert Webb, who you know, who, who made it the argument, you know, he very much felt that he came from a, a working class family, and going to Cambridge for him was the thing that meant that his life changed completely and his life prospects changed completely. Um, whereas actually, for, for Jeremy Corbyn, going to university or not yeah. was not the thing that set the decided the course of the rest of his life. So I can, I, I could definitely see Rob's argument. I couldn't quite see um, Biz's because she, <laughs> her battery was running out, and she and, and she had to go. So, so what was the what was the thing that irritated you in the in the critiques of the quote? Well, I think it was the I thought Rob Webb, Rob Webb's one was one of those things which I think I can see why it irritated people because devoid of its context you just think he's like a posh bloke who's been moaning very millionaire. moaning millionaire so I could see why that irritated people but actually it was the person who was like you know actually the problem is is if you're talk if you're talking to your street sweeper and you go oh gosh they're very wise it's like well actually that shows something's wrong with the economy was what someone said you're like actually you're like only stupid people should have to do uh but but actually again it doesn't matter how bright you're like ultimately you can't be a street sweeper if you're if you're old like yeah. you yeah it means you're in pain all the time it means you have a really miserable standard of living etc etc what we need to and again this is the point about real social mobility is you ought to have a situation in which everyone's like oh yeah street sweeping oh yeah i, I did that when i was young for a bit and, but this is where i get very wonkish about career paths and, and all of that so I will stop. Um, <laughs> no, I think it's it, it. Yeah, it was interesting. It reminds me a lot of the debate uh, that there are about um, critiques of of sex work. I know that's going to sound quite random, mm. but actually, very few people choose to be sex workers, and those who do often do it because of economic reasons, right? Because it's it's a job that you know you you essentially you're in the grey economy, so you're not mm. engaging with that, or you know it's the only thing you can do when you have around have kids. There is an element of coercion which is economic, even if it's not actually by being being trafficked. And that well, it's like Sartre says, freedom is what you do with what's been done to you, isn't it? It's very deep. Thank you very much. But but that I think that's sort of a bit what it reminded me of. But but if you ever kind of make those arguments from the perspective of being a middle class person, people kind of go, why? What do you, you know? Oh, it's all right for you in your ivory tower. You know, you blah 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 blah. You know, you're looking down on people. And I think that's you have to try and separate out what is sort of you know middle class tongs of horror picking up working class jobs or mm. uh, economically insecure jobs and also but but acknowledging that there are jobs that most people don't want to do yeah no i think and that... That most people who do those jobs would if they had better options or other options would would cheerfully give them up tomorrow they're not f- fulfilling careers speaking of jobs that most people don't want to do let's move back to the labor leadership and the shadow cabinet <laughs> um effortless segue that was there. amazing um so Sarah Champion has unresigned. Um, yeah, I'm really intrigued by this because I've I always had quite a lot of respect for Sarah Champion, the work she's done about around abuse, and I just 
I, I mean, there's lim- loads of bits of the, the story that I enjoy, like the bit where apparently she left an email on the desk and it took them five days to find it and find out that she'd unresigned. I, I did wonder whether or not this is the this is the first of many unresignations, but my my counterpoint to that is that, as I understand it, they had not yet filled her job. Right? Yeah. So if you're Maria Eagle and you go, <laughs> I'll go back to defence, smell you later, Clive Lewis, I suspect that's not going to be quite such an easy thing to unpick. Yeah, I mean, I also think... So I think there are a couple of, of, of moving parts to this particular unresignation. One is is that some people will, will go back because they're feeling under a lot of pressure in their their local party. Um, because the really interesting variable... And again, this is something where I would really like an academic to do a proper study of this, right? In some places, people have joined to vote for Corbyn and they have done absolutely nothing to... Uh, beyond that in the Labour Party. Like, so, no canvassing, no door knocking. And they no haven't gone to any meetings, etc., etc. Et yeah. And a really good way of telling where those the, the places where people have voted for Corbyn and done nothing else live is how vocally anti-Corbyn the MP are. Now, now some people are just, you know, they're, they're not aggressive politicians. They, you know, they, they're just not people who brief against people full stop, um, you know. Lillian Greenwood is a good example. Her her constituency party's always been fairly. Right, Liz McInnes is I mean, also L- kind Liz of McInnes, gone. Yeah, like again, like go over the top uh, her this week. Constituency's always been fairly, you know, kind of apathetic to Jeremy, but it's in terms of people who turn out. But but she's not someone who 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 briefs against people anyway. But there are some people who are being more vocal because they don't feel and they've got any pressure at home. Whereas there are some people who have resigned who are feeling pressure in their local uh, constituency parties who will go back there's also the fact that the the domestic abuse portfolio looked like it wasn't going to be filled and it's an issue that's very dear to her heart so etc etc but crucially she hasn't had to work with corbyn himself all that much my instinct is one of the problems with when he does as i confidently expect win is people like lillian greenwood you know, Heidi Alexander at Shadow Health, who have had to deal with the leader's office, had basically got to a point of just not wanting to have to do that anymore. Of yeah. finding, um I thought that was a really revealing bit in Lillian Greenwood's blog about why she resigned, that she'd spent ages putting together this campaign about um, higher rail fares. You know, there's lots of disgruntlement about how high rail fares are, how many services run late. We've seen all this stuff recently with Southern Rail, the line between London and Brighton, where they've just cancelled trains rather than have them run late because of the way that the contract was written. And actually, you know, there's 66% people support rail renationalisation. What happened on the East Coast mainline shows that a government company can absolutely run a line just as well as a private company. So, you know, it's it's great territory for Labour. It's a public service that lots of people use mm. of different social classes and where a Labour argument is supported by the facts. So I can see how she thought, you know, this is bang up, brilliant, great campaign. And then that day was the day that Corbyn launched the, the never-ending reshuffle where he briefed a lot about, or his team briefed a lot about getting rid of Hillary Benn and then never did. Mm. Um, and that was just, that was all that anyone wrote about. And I think that incident is really revealing about why people have left because they, they just felt that they weren't going to be able to do any good. So why put up with it? And also, why have your name to it when you can't when you feel you aren't getting anywhere? And also, I mean, to be frank, there is a running feeling among Labour wonks that the wonky, the, the policy thinking is not appreciated by the leader's office, uh, then it isn't, you know, and that's why Neil Coleman left. And, and so 
it feels a bit like that point where, and obviously it was more stark in that instance because Blair and Brown didn't really disagree on anything other than the Euro, which one of them should be leader, and Foundation, Foundation Hospitals, actually. But they got to that point by about 2005 when it was just that they didn't want to work with one another yeah. anymore. And so I think it will be quite difficult for him to reconstruct things as they were. So I think we'll just move to a, a slightly different pitched... I think it'd be a sort of zombie opposition where it it will be alive but in name only. Just to finish, guess what I'm reading at the moment? Pride and Prejudice and Zombies? Actually, I started reading that and it just made me annoyed because I wished it was Pride and Prejudice and that the zombies would all sod off and just let me get on with more, you know, arch looks across uh, the ballroom. No, um, Militant by Michael Crick, the reissue of his book about militant tendency in the 1980s. Um, And it's really interesting for two reasons. I mean, obviously, there have been lots of, I think, quite lazy comparisons between Momentum, the campaign group that came out of Jeremy Corbyn's leadership group, which is now an entirely separate entity, and and Militant's idea of a sort of party within a party. And the most obvious of which is actually about where far-left politics uh, has lost its kind of compass, really, because of the fall of communism and because of of what's happened there, is that, you know, you read... um, Momentum's list of demands, which he has in there, and actually they're all relatively main. I mean, there's there's national. Yeah, sorry, what did I say? Said momentum. Oh no! See, this is what's happened. I've fallen into the trap. Um, list of demands. Uh, you know, and with the exception of nationalisation of the top whatever it, number of it is industries, actually a lot of them seem quite, you know, unradical. I think they would have seemed quite unradical at the time. Um, but the but uh, but obviously communism provided a completely alternate ideology that you could you could flip from one. To the other, um, we just don't have that anymore. Very, I mean, the, the Morning Star's got a circulation of what thirty thousand, I think. Um, you know, there are a very small number of people who have got a completely different ideology to capitalism for all the, the critiques of, that everyone has of it. Um, the one thing that I think is is in, interesting and, and and actually I think does apply to momentum is I think there is still the same idea of uh, of a transitional demand. So you ask for something that is impossible, but you hope that in the kind of struggling for it, people will realise that there is something fundamentally rotten about the whole system. And I think I do see some of that rhetoric. So you, this is, again, speaking to what you said about lack of kind of policy interest, is actually it's about it's about end austerity. Well, what does that mean, really? Yeah. Uh, but but in the process of struggling to end austerity, you realise you're not getting anything done, and then you realise that, you know, that the whole system is it, it needs, needs to be smashed. So... Yeah, you you're reading a book about um, the Labour Party ending a, a a troubled period in its history and entering a time of great uh, success for it electorally, and I'm reading one about Labour's kind of electoral nadir and a huge schism in the party, resulting in mass expulsions. So we're like the yin and yang, really, of the Labour Party in our reading at the moment. <laughs> Hi, I'm Caroline. And I'm Anna. And together we host the New Statesman's Pop Culture Podcast, Seriously. If this sounds like something you'd be interested in, you can get this episode and everything else we've done on newstatesman.com forward slash S-R-S-L-Y. And welcome to You Ask Us, the section in which you ask us things. Uh, there are two separate things, one of which I thought we'd deal very quickly, which has seen the bulk of the questions we've got, which is basically, when does it all end? When does Labour's civil Will it war... end in a split or will it end up in them sewing it together? So I'm working on the assumption that what happens is at the end of September, Jeremy Corbyn gets re-elected. A couple of people, but not many, go back into the shadow cabinet 
and essentially they are an, an uneasy truce for a while. I don't think they can launch another leadership bid immediately afterwards. I think that's just beginning to you're beginning to look crazy now. But um, I think the really worrying thing is what happens if Theresa May sees the incredible honeymoon polls that she's got with a 16-point lead in the latest one and decides to go to an early election, which could, I think, end up with a Conservative majority then of over 100. Now, that poll lead will undoubtedly ebb away, but it's worth noting that Ed Miliband never... What was his worst... Down by six. Down by six in the entire time he's leader, and that's somebody who didn't win an overall majority. Um, I mean, but, but also things. I mean, so obviously the polls were were wrong in, in the end of the last time, which is is part of why that happened. But basically, the opposition always loses vote share. The yeah, people basically go like, "Oh yeah, let's give it a chance," and then pe- uh, enough people will go, "Oh well, they haven't killed us yet." Basically, regardless of circumstances, the government will recover a little bit. So it, it's and not... a new leader always gets. I mean, this is the explanation everyone gives for the '92 election, which Labour expected to win, was that had it been Margaret Thatcher, they would have lost. But John Major was new enough and fresh enough that he was able to kind of come in and and say, "Hey, give me a chance." But I think also that yeah, people were still concerned and nervous of the Labour Party. It's relatively recent past in in the 1980s, but Major was kind of a look. I'm changed, but don't worry, I'm not this scary change. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it feels likely there will be a snap election, partly because of the honeymoon polls, partly because the economy is looking a bit. Partly because she's. Have you changed your mind on that? Were you Mister Not No Snap Election? Nope. Okay. I, I, I was, when it when she was doing the reshuffle, I tweeted. Yeah. Uh, if you're sacking this many people, you're probably preparing to have a snap election. Okay, someone was arguing vociferously with me, and I just assumed that if someone was arguing with me about politics, it was you, but it must have been someone else. But no, it was not me. But in terms of the battle in the Labour Party, the answer is it will never end. And I think there's a very apposite quote from Macmillan's diaries. This is in 1959. Labour have just lost their third successive election defeat. And Macmillan, the then Prime Minister, records in his diary, The Labour Party, as we would expect, are engaged in a tremendous post-mortem about the general election. The right wants to drop socialism and nationalisation. The left wants more socialism and more nationalisation. And that is basically where the Labour Party has been at. And ultimately, left-wing parties don't don't win if they don't have a revisionist tendency. It doesn't matter actually if it's left-wing revisionism or right-wing revisionism. But you have to have someone who brings your, 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 sort of your values which don't really change into a, a modern setting, right? So whether you're Alexis Cyprus or Matteo Renzi or Tony Blair or Harold Wilson, you kind of need some... But revisionism irritates other people in your party. Yanis Varoufakis, obviously, being a fairly good example of that in uh, in Syriza. Renzi's many internal enemies in the in the Italian Democrats, etc., etc. So that, that never stops. You just occasionally have periods in which one side enters a prolonged period of ascendancy and eventually crushes most of its internal opposition. But the only parties which don't have civil wars are parties which are dead or sects. But that's it. I mean, one of the things that I thought was, I think it was Ian Leslie said after the EU referendum, you know, if you're a Remain voter, think how angry and disenfranchised and not listened to you feel now. Well, that's how a lot of people who voted for UKIP have felt for a really long time. Yeah. And there's something kind of similar about people on the centre-left of the Labour Party. You know, if you feel, like, angry that your party has been taken away you know it's going in a direction that you don't want that's how Jeremy Corbyn has felt since 1983 well since before 1983 since before being elected to parliament it's it's always a, a contest between the two yeah should we move on to our second question I will just apologise to readers if they can hear some strange knocking I think someone's like conducting a kind of seance next door or something like that who yeah, knows it, it was not as we were accused of by one listener last week 
one of us chewing. Mm. <laughs> Although we uh, do love food. But yeah, so what was the second question? More United. What do we think of More United? Well, you know my long-standing policy, which is that even when I don't think things are going to work or I don't think things are particularly well-conceived, I like... And I don't, I like the idea of people doing things and not merely moaning. And I don't really see what, you know, this is my attitude towards people doing bits of feminism that I don't particularly think are that useful. You know, why kind of crap all over someone just who's just trying to do something good if you think that the net outcome is that they're not going to get what they want. So even if I thought More United was a total crock, to be honest with you, I wouldn't do a brutal takedown of it. But as it is, I don't mind it. I think that actually we could do with some more social movements that aren't political parties. I think it feels like, and it's a horrible word, but it feels like the ecosystem around politics is a bit thin at the moment. Uh, You know, I mean, UKIP essentially a kind of single issue pressure group that turned into a political party. The Fabians are not a massive force. You know, they do some interesting stuff now. Um, the Lib Dems obviously finding it def- difficult to kind of cut through. The Women's Equality Party finding it very difficult to cut through. The Fawcett Society similarly. You know, I just, I, I don't, I'm not, I don't mind having more kind of single issue or, you know, or narrowly focused campaigns in politics because I think they are actually a really good addendum and a reservoir of expertise and impetus alongside political parties. Yep, sorry, more united, which I should have uh, described uh, a bit more, is this new kind of crowd-funded political platform for kind of sounds, politicians of all different just, parties. It sounds a bit is, like the Lib Dems. I think that's the thing. It's, it's one of those things where, so the thing is, I want to agree with all of, all, all of those points. The, the left very badly needs to create an, an ecosystem of various ideas and grouping. One of the things which really gets on my wick is that there's a certain type of lefty who will say like, oh, we, we don't have our own IEA, we don't have our own policy exchange, we don't have our own... And then whenever the IPPR or Progress or Class or any of these people does something they don't like, they get very, very angry. It's like, no, but you kind of need all of these to gradually command the space. So what the right has done through that kind of IEA, through right through the policy exchange network, is it's created this sort of ecosystem which people can go, well, I'm not as extreme as these people. You can say to its base, I'm not as much of a sellout as these people. Yeah, or the Adam Smith can, Institute yeah. is another example. And that's where people like um, Matthew Elliott from Vote Leave um, yeah. came up through things like the Taxpayers Alliance. You know, you might not like them. But, and also they bolster each other, right? Because they can all go on TV and back up each other's points. They get invited on question time to push a particular narrow agenda. And I don't, and I think the left has, as you say, not been as good at doing that. However, I'm now going to, having, having done a little piece about how the left should be nicer to other lefty organisations, this one in particular does look like a crock, doesn't it? I mean, it's kind of, oh, you know, tolerance, openness, functioning an economy, and it's just, aren't you basically describing Nick Clegg or Tony Blair? Which is fine. I mean, obviously, I like Nick Clegg and Tony Blair. I'm not going to resile from either of those now deeply unpopular positions. <laughs> so if, if that's what you want, you need to fight for it and advocate with, for it within a political party. It feels a little bit like um, BuzzFeed did a guide to the EU referendum before the vote, which had a line which caused me to start foaming at the mouth, which is, it doesn't matter who you vote for as long as you vote. It's just like, no, 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 I'm sorry, it did matter who you voted for in the EU referendum. It does. But that's BuzzFeed's faux um, objectivity. There's no one who reads BuzzFeed that thinks that the majority of people working there support UKIP, right? It's just not, is it? It's just a sort of... It's it's just a sort of pallid kind of sop to the idea that they're they're open minded. But I think that's kind of the problem with with more united, right? Isn't it's 
Well, that's to what, live that was always front. my problem with with the Women's Equality Party being: why would you, you know, not take a position on the EU referendum? Why would you not take a position on a, a partisan position? There is one, you know, there are parties that are more likely to deliver all of your goals, and there is, you know, UKIP is not going to deliver the goals of the Women's Equality Party or advocate for the policies that it that it wants. And I've had this argument several times <laughs> because I go to the kind of parties where people from the Women's Equality Party are, which I also think is kind of a, an issue um, with them. And you know, they've got they've got they've got their reasons behind that too what i would like where i'd like it to go where i to be advising them which i'm not is about a kind of core set of policy propositions because actually that's the work that really needs to be done right there's there's no kind of off the peg set of of policy ideas that work for 2016 and beyond that deal with the challenges that we currently now have in the economy that are ready to be stolen by a political party which is kind of what you want to do in that situation you want to come up with ideas that are so brilliant that they get nicked and enacted quite quickly yeah because i think the thing is is ultimately there is no point in politics if it doesn't upset somebody the problem is a lot of people on the left interpret that as therefore you need to be rude but they don't actually have a policy platform which upsets people they're just upsetting to be around uh which is not really the same thing but equally this kind of has the reverse problem exactly as you say if they want to say look we'll give money to any candidate who supports a market-based economy that works for everyone it's like well does that mean putting workers on board or does it mean salary ladders so you can't you know then if the ceo is on 400k then the lowest paid worker has to be on at least 20 quid an hour or whatever you know yeah. like, what does no, it, I'm what more does interested it mean in stuff yeah. like um uh, emily's list you know the idea of, of funding candidates specifically who will take um pro-choice positions for yeah. example, or funding, uh, you know, women or minority candidates. You know, those kind of tangible, measurable outcomes. That's my feeling that any any project, any political project, should have. You know, and actually, what would be the things that you would put in that? In that, uh, you know, I would put care really high in that. Um, actually, you know, we need some really good policies, both around childcare and about elderly care. I mean, elderly care is is going to be a vote winner because elderly people who vote are going to need care. And and actually, lots of you know, lots of people in their sixties are caring for people in their nineties. You know, it's a really huge issue. Or you know, agency workers. We were writing the leader this week about what's happened at um, Sports Direct and at BHS, and about that kind of casualised world of of work and about people's insecurity around their their company pensions. You know, those are just those are just bread and butter political issues that you could you could attract a, a pretty broad base of support around. I think. Yeah, and I think those are both solutions. And also. I'd like to make it clear this is not because you mentioned old people, but just because it's becoming a bit of an obsession of mine for other reasons. I'd like to reassure our readers it's not because I'm dying. Euthanasia. <laughs> right, okay. I spend a lot of time in the House of Lords, and a lot of them are really keen campaigners for the right to die, and as a result, I have effectively gone native. Okay. Um, I've spent too much time in the House of Lords, and a lot of them are really keen campaigners for it, quite rightly, because it's a massive issue. It's also a massive class issue because we in Britain now effectively have the right to die if you're wealthy enough to shell out for travel to Switzerland. Well, this is like, and, and, and the same thing in Northern Ireland or indeed yeah. in the Republic, You, we have access to abortion for, for rich for, people. For rich people, yeah. Who can afford to um, die, which is things like Abortion Support Network try and fund people so that everybody can get access. But it has always been the case that you can buy your way out of that law by travelling abroad. And that's that's the same thing with euthanasia. There's a William Gibson quote, which is the, the future is here, but it's just not evenly distributed. Yeah. And that's what happens with a lot of, of unfair discriminatory laws. You know, the law enact it's just not evenly distributed yeah and a fun final fact because it's obviously been a fairly bleak uh, yeah, right. podcast so far about the right to die uh charlie faulkner has lost a lot of weight you know when he was a minister in tony blair's government he was a rather 
portly gentleman who's yep. now very thin and smiley. As has Nicholas Soames. I don't yeah. know. I want to know what. Oh, I actually have another fun story about, about okay. Nicholas Soames. I've got two fun stories about formerly fat men in politics. Charlie Faulkner um, is, uh, you know, he's you know, getting getting rather rotund. And um, he's asked, uh, in, and, so, and in one of the bishops who's pro uh, the right to die goes up to his wife and he's just like, so Charlie's been making a lot of speeches about the right to die. He said, yes. And he's lost a lot of weight. She said, yes. He said, is he? Uh, and she said, no, 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 he's he's not dying. He was like, oh, could we put it about than he is? Because I think it might get a few wavering uh, people on the fence to vote with us on this one. Uh, my second story about formerly fat And it's top clergy. That's classic clergy as well, yeah. isn't it? Right yeah. there. Just, you know, I'm sure the Lord moves in mysterious ways. What if, he, what if we were to tell yeah. people that he were dying? Um, so Nicholas Soames is coming up the, the escalator in Portcullis House. Tom Watson, also a famously rotunda, is coming Ooh. coming down. And Tom Watson says, oh, well done, Nick. You've lost a lot of weight. Nicholas Soames shouts back, yes, soon I'll be able to give you all of my old suits. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. He's got a lot of game. I, I, yeah, I, he is. That man, Nicholas Soames is definitely living his best life. He was born for Twitter. Even yeah. the way that he uses hashtag. What was the one he used that was like "shut up, wetty"? That was yeah. <laughs> name it, wetty. That was it. Yeah, yeah. I know. I just I I retain a sneaking affection for um, Tory MPs who just after a while just kind of go a bit yolo. Like when Michael Portillo kind of had had enough and now just goes on trains across Europe. But don't tell anyone outside the podcast that I said that because otherwise it'd be I'll get told to go and join the Tories, uh, like many voters are. Um, thanks, uh, Stephen. I, I should mention there is an opportunity for you, our wonderful listeners, to tell us a bit more about yourself so we can uh, cater better to your needs. We're taking uh, part of a survey with Acast who hosts the podcast. You can get £200. Someone will win £200 for taking part uh, in Amazon vouchers at survey.acast.com and choose the New States from podcast and then fill in our listener survey. And just tell us all about yourselves and what you'd like to listen to from us. Uh, and also, um, you can still get tickets to uh, come and see us live which I've realised is about two days after they announced the Labour leadership election. So it's possible that the party might be in even more of a state than it is now. And it's just in like an hour of you and I just sort of wailing, really, wailing. So that, who wouldn't want to pay yeah, £9.50 to, to see, see us um, But yeah, you can find the links on newstatesman.com forward slash podcast. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast presented by me, Helen Lewis, and produced by Anna Leskovitz. You can find us every week at newstatesman.com forward slash podcast or on iTunes. Our theme music is Devil with the Devil by the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons.
When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.